You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. Please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Well, usually when I do talks like this or sermons like this, I start off and I say something like, my name is Josh Rosentreter. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Hill Church, which meets on the west side of Columbus. We're a new church plant, and we've been around for about a year and a half. And all of that is true, but to many of you in the room, I'm not Josh, the lead pastor of Redemption Hill Church. Me and my wife, Brittany, had the pleasure and the honor. Don't do that, man. <laughs> I'm moving here in 2013. And uh, being a part of starting this church, we got to play just a small role with a a lot of other people. I took a picture when I was up here. I hope that wasn't too weird for you all. And I sent it to my dad. And I said, do you remember when you dropped me off? And there were 35 people, including our family. And then Rush's family has like, you know, another half of that. You know, it it was like, there's like barely anyone in this little Jimma Cafetorium. And he dropped me off. And, we le- and he left me there, and he was like, well, good luck planting a church. And that's where it all started. Ella wasn't born yet. Ezra could still fit in my arms, though he was like the longest baby ever, so barely. It was just so, it feels so long ago in so many ways. And, and we are just so thankful for our time here at Paramount Church. Brittany is so disappointed. She has, I think, tapped into the live feed today. Uh, her and the kids are sick, so you can pray for them. They were going to be here with me today, but she's, she's bummed, so you can take her out to lunch sometime, and she would really love that. But we just want to say from, from our hearts as the Rosentreders, but also from the people of Redemption Hill Church, thank you. Thank you for our time here. Thank you for, for your investment in us to let us uh, learn how to do ministry with you and through you, and thank you for your continued support of our church plant. As you give to Paramount, they give to us, and then some of you personally do give to us as well, and we are so indebted to that, and that's also a hard thing for me to say thank you for because uh, I think I'm okay now. Court stopped crying, so now I can stop. But I really do mean thank you, and here's why, because I love to do what I get to do. I love to share the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. I love to preach the gospel from a pulpit, and I get to do that full-time because of people like you who give sacrificially and let us do that. And so I want to say personally, thank you. Thank you for your gifts. And let me pray for us before we jump to the passage. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for uh, the ability to be back. Thank you for how you've grown in this church from the, that small little gathering of people in Maryland Elementary to, to what we have now. And God, I just pray that its best days are still before it. God, I pray that you would bless this place and that they would grow. And God, it would be a gospel testimony to the, to the city in Bexley. And that many would come to know you, God, and that you would use them to, to continue to plant churches that plant churches. And that we would be able to work together And that our two churches would one day be a network of churches in our city as we look to plant and establish the gospel here. Lord, we ask for that blessing, and I ask for your blessing today as we look what kind of disciples, individual disciples, are necessary to see those things happen. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Well, the passage this morning, again, is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. That's Luke 9, 57 through 62. Well, I grew up in central Illinois, which is a very rural kind of context and background. And one of the advantages to that was we lived only about a mile away from the small lake that my family owned a cabin, if you could really call it that. My grandpa built it himself, uh, moving wood and all the materials necessary on a boat to its location. So it was not much of a cabin, but it was there. And, and when I got a little older, my dad bought a ski boat. We had this little ski boat, and we got to do this thing called tubing. Raise your hand. Have you ever been tubing behind a... Okay, not bad. So for some of you who haven't done that, here's what happens. Somebody drives this boat while another guy ties a rope to the back of that boat and throws an inner tube out there. And then someone else gets on that inner tube, and they just yank him around the lake. And it's a lot of fun. And it's a really enjoyable kind of thing, but it's kind of terrifying at times, and you have to put a lot of trust in the driver of that boat. Well, in today's sermon... I want to tell you, I want to challenge you of just who is driving your life. And here's what I mean by that, because the reality is, is that boat and that tube, so long as that rope holds, they're linked together. That tube goes where the boat goes. That's just how it works. And I think in the Christian life, there's this battle. You were kind of talking a little bit about it in ABF today, particularly between our good desires and the things that God has called us to do. And these things are linked together, and they're always going to be together, and it's just a part of life. But the question that I want to ask you today is, is what is the boat? Is it the task to go and proclaim Christ that Jesus gives to you, to proclaim the kingdom of God, which we see here, or are they your, maybe your good desires? See, what happens, I think, when we're living right, life the right way, it's Christ is that boat, and he's pulling us, and then our good desires, things for safety and duty and our family relationships that we'll talk about in today's passage, they get pulled behind. And they're still there, but they're getting pulled behind what Christ is doing in our life. But sometimes, if we're honest, we drive the boat, and Jesus is told to get on the back. Everyone needs Jesus everywhere, so I'll just live where I want to live. I'll do what I want to do. And our good desires, though they may be good, they start to drive. And the things of God just get pulled behind. And what I want to look at is as we look at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, is I want to look to see that following Jesus is preeminent. Following Jesus has to be the thing that comes first, and everything else is what needs to be pulled behind. We don't have slides today, so if you're a note-taking person, here you go. Following Jesus is preeminent. That's the title. And then we're going to have three specific ways that he can display his preeminence. You can put spaces between them if you really need to take some notes. That he is preeminent over our safety over our duty, and over our relationships. We'll work through this passage together to to see that with one another. Now, you might say, what in the world does the word preeminent mean? It just means this, that he comes first, that he's before all things. And you're like, oh, why not just say that? Make the sermon title, Jesus comes first. Because preeminent just carries a little more weight, doesn't it? I had a friend uh, last weekend he got first place in the London, Ohio Marathon. Now, it was a small group of runners, but 
he still, I mean, he like qualified for Boston. It was, it was a really magnificent thing to say. And if I tell you my friend Joe got first place in the marathon, it's like, that's really cool. But if I tell you that Joe is the preeminent marathon runner in London, Ohio, it just has a little bit of a different ring to it. Jesus deserves that ring. He needs to be preeminent in your life. I chose that word because it's weighty. And that's the kind of weight that Christ has. Let's read our passage for the morning. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me First, go and bury my father. And Jesus said to them, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, as we come into our passage uh, this morning, it's important to know that in the paragraph before, the text tells us that Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. It's one way to tell us that he has determined that now is the time that he's going to go and fulfill all things. He's going to go into the city of Jerusalem, and when he is there, he will encounter a a mock trial, a, a false, terrible trial that should have never happened. He'll be pronounced guilty even though he's totally innocent, He'll be beaten and eventually die for the sins of man and raised from the dead. And Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. And as they're walking around along the road, he has this encounter. Luke tells us about these three unnamed disciples. And I think it's actually really helpful to us that they are unnamed. Because it's not like, well, it's, it's just Peter and John. And that's, that's just who Jesus meant this for, or those guys. Or it's just like James or just Thomas. Like, no. They're unnamed disciples. They're just people who are following him. They're people like me and you who are saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, or Jesus calling to them and saying, I want you to follow me. And then Jesus gives these responses to them as they deal with this of what it looks like to follow him. To follow Jesus, he must be preeminent in our lives. And the first thing we want to see is that he's preeminent over our safety. Looking there in verses 57 and 58, as it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This guy calls out and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus wants him to know that the Son of Man, who's what he calls himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He basically tells him that you're better off being a fox or a bird if what you're looking for is comfort or in particular, safety. I definitely think there's some elements of comfort here, but I, th I think when we really think about, like, why does a fox make a hole or a bird a nest? I don't know that it's just to be, like, comfortable. It's to do things like care for their young, to avoid predators, to avoid the elements that are life-threatening to them. This is about safety. You ever tried to sleep when you don't feel safe? It's difficult. It's difficult to, to find yourself lolling off to sleep. You know what makes you go to sleep when you're nice and cozy? You're confident that nothing's going to get you. 
Jesus is saying to them, if you're going to follow me, things are going to get dangerous. What makes you feel safe? Your house? Living in a particular neighborhood? Particular amount of income? Your savings account? Your retirement account? Maybe it's your kids' education. If we can educate them this way, then they will be safe. Maybe it's your physical health or job security. What makes us feel safe? And is it possible that there are times that Jesus is saying, hey, you might not be able to have that thing if you come and follow me. And would you still come and follow me? The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you come follow me, things are going to get risky. Sometimes things will be a bit dangerous. Now, is it wrong to have these things? I have a house. I'm trying to get this retirement thing figured out. I'll just work forever, I think, but that's okay. Is it wrong to have that? Is it wrong to have a home? Is it wrong to to educate my kids a a certain way? We're starting that soon. We're going to go the homeschool route, and some of that is because of safety. I live in a hard neighborhood. It's not the kind of place you would typically hope your kids go to school. But, but what does that mean? What does that look like? So is it wrong that we would do that kind of thing? Is it wrong that we'd have this? And I would say, no. You know what's wrong? Is that's the question that we're asking. See, the Christian life isn't asking, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. Just tell me what's permissible. How much can I have? See, Jesus, I'm good, but like, is it okay that I get to keep this stuff over here? Because that's what makes me feel safe. And then I'm in, but are you sure? See, I think when that starts to happen, if we're just honest, you've started to drive and Jesus gets put on the tube. When we're not willing to follow Jesus, even if it makes means taking a risk, we start to get to a place where we say, I don't know that I trust you to drive this thing. I'm going to take over for a little bit. Why don't you get back on the tube? What are you living for? What do you daydream about? When your mind just starts to wander, do you start daydreaming about a house with X amount of bedrooms and bathrooms? What starts to to come into your mind? What goals do you have for yourself? If you're to fill in this blank, My life would just be better if. What makes its way? And is that, by chance, driving your life? And Jesus has been left to to just kind of go where you want to go. For me, what makes me feel unsafe is the fear that my church plant might not make it. Now, what could be wrong with that? I mean, isn't it a good thing to want your church to not die? Isn't it a good thing to want to, to plant something that's healthy and sustainable? Yeah, it is. But it can become a bad thing very, very quickly if it starts to drive. Good desires can become ruling desires. We cannot let them drive the boat. We cannot let them have the, the, the last say. But instead, I think Jesus is calling us to be a people that say, Jesus, 
you're in charge. Foxes may have holes and birds of the, the air may have nests. But if I have no place to lay my head, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to be willing to hold those things with open hands. Because here's what you need to know. No matter what happens in your life, if you lose your house or your job, you live in a more dangerous neighborhood than you would like to live in, you get sick. And I mean really sick. Your retirement fund takes a hit. You start spending money that you just didn't think you were going to have to spend. You need to know that no matter what, Christ still sits on the throne and he is preeminent over all things. And that includes you. He is first. And you can follow him and you can trust him in that. And he's not only first over the things that make us feel safe, but leads us to our second point this morning. He's first even over our earthly duty. Picking up in verse 59, it says, To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this guy to follow him. And he says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, I think the big thing there is, is, is that word first. It's the order of importance. He, wants to, he thinks it's more important to go bury his father than to follow Jesus in that moment. And, and this thing, in, in their culture, in a Jewish culture, this is a really big deal. We actually see an example of this in, in the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph tells them when he dies, hey, when I'm dead, make sure you take my bones and bury them back with my family. And then in Exodus 13, we get this little record that that's exactly what happens. Now, here's why I want to point that out. Like, the book of Exodus has the ten plagues, it has the giving of the law, it has the, the tabernacle being built. Like, it's some really important stuff. Like, Moses isn't just, like, keeping a diary. He's writing down, like, the most important things. And as a part of that, he's like, oh, and don't worry, we didn't leave Joseph's bones behind. Burying your dead and taking care of your dead family members, it's a big deal. This really matters to this community. And here's Jesus. He actually has the gumption to tell this guy, go let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. This is a big deal. Is, is Jesus is telling this guy, and he's using this play on words, the dead to bury their own dead. Those who, who, who aren't believers, who aren't Christians, who are dead in the flesh, they are the ones who are going to go and bury the dead. There's old duties, even these old obligations, these really, really important ones, no longer define this man. His primary responsibility is not to his old ways of life, even the things that are important. Because what is getting ready to happen? Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. He's going to go die, and then he's going to resurrect from the dead. And Jesus is saying, listen, my kingdom is no longer a dead kingdom. My kingdom is a resurrected kingdom. And you need to let the dead go bury their own dead. But you're not dead anymore if you come and follow me. You, as in I am raised, you are raised. And you're raised to a new and completely different ordering of what's important. Now, I think for this particular guy, why doesn't he get to go bury his dad? I don't think this is an excuse for you to skip your parents' funeral. But, 
But, but as you look at this, why is it so important? Well, what's going to happen is, is again, Jesus is going to go and he's going to die. He's going to raise again. And the Bible tells us that there's only about 500 people who witness him die and raise. And that those people he's going to use to spread the gospel throughout the entire world. And he's telling this guy, come and follow me. You're going to see me alive. Come with me to Jerusalem. So I think in this circumstance, is it more important to follow Jesus than to bury your dead dad? Yeah, if he's going to go die for the sins of humanity and raise again from the dead so that then you can bear witness to that truth, yes, you have to let the dead bury their own dead. You're not going to get to bury your dad. That's a hard thing. Because he tells him, you go, let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God which is something that gets ready to happen really soon. And, and the, earlier in this chapter, he sent out the 12 to go and proclaim the kingdom of God and to do the things that he was doing. Right after this, he's going to send out 72 to go and preach the gospel, the good news that he had come to save what was lost, that he had come to save sinners from sin. And he's saying that is more important. What's happening is proclamation of the kingdom of God is now becoming the first priority in this person's life, even over burying his father. I think there's a reality to the sovereignty of God that he is allowing this guy's dad to die at this time. And he is calling this guy at this particular time to come and follow him to watch those events so that you and I would read a passage like this and say, if following Jesus has to be preeminent over burying your parents, then following Jesus is preeminent over everything. There's no greater earthly responsibility than to your family. There just isn't. And Jesus is saying, you go and you come and follow me. So is Jesus the boat or the tube in your life? Does he reorder your life? Would you change careers if that's what he called you to? Would you live in a different neighborhood? Would you save less money so you could be more generous? Or maybe I could ask the inverse of the question. If you stopped following Jesus today, you got done with church and you said, ah, I'm done doing this, what would be different? Sunday mornings become more free? Would that be it? Or do you follow Jesus in such a way that he's just reordered everything about your life? And if you were to stop following him, you'd be like, I don't even know what to do. My whole life would just get upended because I'm so deeply invested in the kingdom of God that everything that I'm doing is, is tied to it. What would that look like? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, this church planter guy is totally crazy. He's telling us that he wants us to skip out on our parents' funerals and to not have a house what is going on in this passage? I don't know if I want anything to do with this Jesus guy. If you're here this morning, I'm so glad you're here. Here's what I want to say to you. If Jesus is just a man, if he's just a good teacher or like a leader of a really good movement, and he just helps people kind of get their life together, then he is totally crazy. If Jesus is just a man, these demands are way too much. This is, this is way too intense. Go bury your parents. Go get a house. But if he's more, 
If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, and he has come into this world, wrapped himself in flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life to show us what it looks like to follow God and glorify him, went to a cross that he did not deserve, died for your sins and for mine, and then rose again from the dead, then he's worth it. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And what I'm going to say is if that's true, if that's true, and only if that's true, does this text make any sense? Only if Jesus came so that we might be made right before a holy God. Only if he is who he says he is. And I firmly believe that is who he is. Does text like this make any sense? Jesus makes this claim because he's bought us with his blood. He has laid claim on this man's life. He has told him, come and follow me, and I am more important than everything else. Dear Christian, if you believe this is true, then you must acknowledge that Jesus has the right to be preeminent over everything in your life, your safety, your duty, and finally, even your relationships. Verse 61, yet another I said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This guy wants to follow Jesus, and he says, hey, but let me go say, say farewell to the people at my house. Let me just say bye to my family. And Jesus says, don't look back at your old life. You come and follow me. I read that, and I'm like, man, if that happened to me, my mom would hate Jesus. My mom would be so mad if I didn't come and tell her goodbye. I wouldn't get to bury my dad, and now I don't get to tell my mom goodbye. Are you kidding me? Is that really what it looks like to be called to follow Jesus? And again, I think it's the reality of what is first. First, let me go do this. And Jesus is saying, that isn't first anymore. Your earthly family isn't first anymore. The gospel radically changes and up, uproots our lives, and we completely change. And he's, he's telling him, and he uses this metaphor, no one who puts his hand to the plow, no one who says, I'm going to follow Jesus and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's to say, you, you can't make a straight furrow if you're looking backwards all the time. That illustration doesn't do much for me. I've never used a hand plow in my life, but I do mow my yard, right? And if you've ever mowed your yard, just imagine trying to do that by looking backwards. You're not going to get nice straight lines. You're not going to be able to do the task at hand the way it's meant to be done. And I think that's what Jesus is pointing at. You can't have the distractions of this world pulling you back to your old way of life. If you long to live the way that I'm calling you to live, if you long to go and proclaim the gospel and the kingdom of God, which is the call to every disciple, you have to be willing to put your hand to the plow and say the things of the past are in the past. The things behind me are no longer my priority to the point of your family, the people at your home is not telling them goodbye these are extreme. They're radical kinds of things that we see in Luke. And he's saying, this is what I want you to do. We see a man in, in, in Mark's gospel, the rich young ruler. Some of you are maybe familiar with this. 
guy, he, he comes to Jesus and he basically tells Jesus, hey, I've done everything right. I'm, I'm following all your commands. What do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus looks at that guy and says, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the text tells us that he walks away sad because he had many possessions. He wasn't willing to give everything up to follow Jesus. And so later they're talking, and his disciples are like, listen, if that guy can't get in, like, what are we doing here? Right? And so Peter says this. He says, see, we've left everything and followed you. See, right before that, what Jesus basically tells them is the only way you can change that way, the only way you can be the kind of person who lays down everything is if God does a miraculous work in your life. He tells them that it's impossible to do this as a human. That human beings would never just give up everything to follow Jesus. But he tells them, but if God works in your life, if he does that impossible thing, he can change you and you can come and follow me. And then Peter says, well, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus then says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first do you believe that if you give up everything to follow Jesus that he's going to shortchange you i think there's a reality to that we're like nah, i want to drive because i want to make sure we're going where i want to go and Jesus, get on the tube, and I'll just pull you along behind me. And what I want you to know is if you dare to give up everything to follow Jesus, if you dare to say, I will give up my safety, and I will give up my, my relationships, I will, I will let the dead bury their own dead, I'll give up my duty, Jesus, you're first. What I'm saying is he will not leave you short. He won't cut you short. You will receive a hundredfold now in this life. In the early 1800s, Adoniram Judson was called by God to, to go and be a missionary to India and then to Burma, but he was going to land in India first, and he had fallen in love with a, with a girl named Anne, and he wanted her to marry him, and they would go together and be missionaries. So when he went to ask his future father-in-law for Anne's hand in marriage, he wrote a letter, and this is what the letter said. I have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you consent to her departure to a heathen land and her sub sub subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing? Immortal souls who for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior? from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What do you think, Dad? 
You consent to that? You gonna let her go? You gonna send them out? His father-in-law left the decision to Anne and they were married. And they went. And they started the modern missionary movement in many and lots of ways. The Judsons knew what this passage meant here in Luke. It wasn't just a metaphor to them. They knew what it was like to say, I love my parents and I love my family, but I will answer the call of God. It jumped off the page at them and it jumps off the page at people who live the way the Bible has us living. What drives you. When you read these stories, you just read them and think, ah, man, that would be really cool. Are you reading them? And and in your life, are you seeing what this really looks like? I think there's probably two kinds of Christians in this room. There are Christians who read this text and they resonate with the text. They read the text and they say, yeah, I've taken some risk. And sometimes they're hard and it doesn't always work out. There are Christians who can read this and say, I've left my family to follow the call of God. I've left my duty. I've changed careers. I've done something different. And there are Christians who read this text and say, I don't know. Now, I'm not trying to say what makes you a Christian and not a Christian. We're not saved by works. We're saved by, by the grace of God alone. But I'm trying to just ask you this morning and implore you this morning, who's driving the boat? Because here's the, here's the secret. You've been talking about this. I've caught it even in today about joy. I grew up tubing. Want to guess who has fun? The guy on the tube. The guy on the tube feels that exhilaration as it gets flipped out into the water. And it's risky. And it can be scary. But oh, there's joy to be found if you're on the tube. What Jesus is calling us to can be and sound really extreme, but what I want you to know is there's joy to be found in making Jesus preeminent in your life and saying, Jesus, you're it. That's what I want to live for. No matter what comes my way, as you're singing that song just a little bit ago, are you going to be able to read the Bible and read passages like this and say, you know what? I get it and I've experienced it. I know what it's like to do this, to walk away from, from family, to, to, to pay the price. I debated whether I do this, but they're not here, so you just don't have to tell them that I did this. But Kevin and Debbie know what this is like. And, and, I, and I say this because I want you just to know, I want you to feel it in your bones because this is now your story too. If you're a member of this church, this is your story. What it took to bring Paramount Church into existence, it was a move of God and God gets all the glory. But those people 
their entire life was in Jacksonville, Florida. They left their kids for you. They took a massive pay cut for you. Their duty gets shifted upside down for you. And I'm not saying this in any way to elevate them or, or, or lift them up. I'm saying this because you know what? When we stand in glory, they will just be another two unnamed disciples of Jesus. That's what this looks like. And I want to invite you to do something that we set out to do 12, 13 years ago as we came into this city, that we wanted to live in a way that put Christ first and made him preeminent over everything. And we're saying, we believe this is the place where God has called us to go and make disciples, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And we want to see churches planted all throughout the city of Columbus. We don't want Redemption Hill to be the last one. We want to come together and do this again and again and again and again. And if we do that, listen, you're going to lose your sons and your daughters. They're going to go and be sent. And if we do that, you're going to have less money because church planting is expensive. And if we're going to do that, you might have to change your job or you might have to do something really radical like move to the other side of the city. If we're going to do what we believe God called us to do to proclaim the gospel here, then Jesus must be preeminent. I want to leave you with a statistic and a challenge. Here's the stat. It comes from an organization called For Columbus. They're working to try to get more churches planted in Columbus. Five years ago, 27% of the population of Columbus would say that they were Christian. Today, 19% of the city of Columbus would say they're Christian. We're going in the wrong direction. Now, a lot of that is because our city is growing rapidly. The city is growing, and a lot of that growth is coming from all over the world. Praise the Lord. But here's my challenge to you. If we want to see churches planted, the only way that happens is if individuals like you live life like Jesus is preeminent. And there's a lot of different roles to play in that. Maybe it's joining a church planting team. Maybe it's joining us on the west side of Columbus. <laughs> Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's being a lifer here at Paramount. When I say a lifer, I don't just mean time. I mean like this place gets your life. You're saying this, we're, we're digging down. And whatever conflict comes our way, we're going to do that. And so when it comes time to those good desires, we're going to buy a house. They're in the back of the boat. They're getting swung around, and we're saying, you know what? Paramount's home for us. How close can I live to it? Will I give up square footage so I can live a little closer? And that can sound radical, but man, it's not Ann Judson radical. Will you, would you do that? Would you consider what would that look like in your life? What's it look like to join a serving team here? What's it look like to be a part of what we're doing? What's it look like just to go across the street and invite your neighbor to church? Because you're willing to take the risk of rejection because you know that Jesus is preeminent over your safety. That's what it takes to see a church planting movement. Because individuals are captured and enamored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And they say, he is better than everything. And I'm going to live that way. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I ask for your help. Help me live that you are preeminent. God, you know I struggle with this. I, I so often have these good desires come into my life that I, I want to drive. I want to I go my way. I want to have a nice house. I want to have these good experiences. I want my kids to always feel safe. But Lord, help me see, help everybody here see that true safety and true duty and true relationship, it's found in you. That we can trust you, that you're not gonna leave us hanging if, if we put it all on Jesus. So God, I pray for your help. Help us see the joy that is set before us in this. That, that God, this isn't just some kind of taskmaster just crying out and telling us to obey, but Lord, I pray that this comes across as understanding that that's where the joy is found. The joy is found in following Christ and living a life that glorifies and honors him. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. Help us do what you're calling us to do. We ask this in your name. Amen.